following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. We jump back into our series on 1 Timothy. I thought it'd be really good for us just to do a survey of where we've been and in this book and why. We've been in this book since a little after the first of the year. And most of the reason for our review is because the last two Sundays um, might have made us forget that we've been studying the book of 1 Timothy, right? I mean, um, what, what a good two weeks it's been. I mean, two weeks ago, we had Jeffrey Joe from Manila here, and what a blessing Jeffrey was to us. Don't you agree with that? I mean, him and Jeannie being with us, <clears throat> um, just an encouraging time. They are still in the States. They're leaving on May the 5th, I believe it is. They want to get back in time to vote in their presidential election which is a really big one. Um, so what a blessing that was. And then Easter Sunday. I mean, my word. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but between the two services and our children's ministries, we had a, over 600 people here last Sunday. Um, 623 to be exact, if that's the number that was given to me. It's like the board, it's like the, an airport manifest, you know, right? There's 623 souls on board, right? Um, 623 people came and heard the gospel last week, right? I mean, what a what a thing. And, and listen, we just can't thank you enough that you would think that this would be a good place to bring your friends, <laughs> right? Thank you for bringing your family members and, and inviting them to church on Sunday with you. That is an indicator that you believe that your friends and family are going to hear the gospel and that you know that nothing weird is going to take place, right? I mean, I, you know, you ever gone to church and something weird takes place when you brought a friend, right? <laughs> yeah. Don't have to tell me where or when. Uh, might have happened three weeks ago, right? I mean, you know, yeah, you were preaching, pal. Uh, but, but just thank you. Thank God that nothing weird happened last week. Um, but, you know, last Sunday, let me give you a thought of this. We had some people last Sunday in our church, normal people that come. They were sitting in the foyer during second service. They, didn't even, they couldn't even see the stage. And a couple of them, I went to them and I said, I just want to say thanks for doing this. And their comment was just, I think the indicative of the heart of this church, they said, oh man, if it frees up for more people to come, we're glad to do it, right? So we just want to say thank you, right? I, we really do. Um, it's humbling that you would, you would do that. It's a kindness of God to us. So this week, we're going to jump back into 1 Timothy, and we're going to survey 1 Timothy 1 through 3, and here's what I hope we're going to learn. If you're new with us, you should have got an outline. The outline's going to have a big idea on it, and here's the big idea. God has given us the book of 1 Timothy to help us understand the, church, the local church's priorities and character. God has given us the book of 1 Timothy to help us understand the local church's priorities and character. So stand with me and let's read 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, and then we're going to pray. This is the reading of God's word as inspired by God and given to the Apostle Paul. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, 
proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that's inspired, it is God-breathed. And we, your people, bow our hearts in submission to you and to your word. We thank you for giving us words written to reveal to us the priorities of the local church and the character of the local church and her leaders. And I pray this morning that you would, you would do things that we can't do, which are eternal things. That you would open our eyes to the truth of Jesus. That you would inflame our hearts to love Jesus more. And that we would consider precious what you consider precious, which is your church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, as we jump in, let's just briefly remember who wrote this book and who he wrote it to and why he seemed to write the book. Paul, the great apostle and missionary of the first century, wrote the book to his dear son in the faith, Timothy. You can see that very clearly in chapter 1, verse 2. And Timothy was the pastor of the first church in Ephesus. And it seems that in that church there were former leaders who begin to teach false doctrine or false teaching or a false gospel. And Paul felt like he wanted to encourage young Timothy because it seemed that Timothy was thinking about leaving his post and going to join Paul somewhere else. And in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul makes it clear that Timothy was not to leave his post, but he was to stay there and be ready to defend the faith and to refute those who taught false doctrine. Timothy had a challenging task. I mean, this was an incredibly hard church, an incredibly hard city, because you had the Temple of Diana overseeing and influencing this culture, this, the, the, the culture of this city uh, just crazy. The temple towered physically and metaphorically over the city. It, it was on a hilltop overlooking the city with its enormous pillars, and it was a huge building. It was called one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple's practices and worship of the false goddess of fertility can give you some ideas of what might have been influencing the city. It was streaming into every facet of city life and more than likely the church's life. And here's young Timothy pastoring a small church in a cultured city that was being influenced by a massive temple. Now you can just imagine what this would have been like. You can imagine the questions that Timothy might have had when he laid his head down on his pillow at night wondering, what am I supposed to do in this town? How do I pastor these people? I mean, you can almost feel like Moses, you know, and Moses said, God, don't forget, you're the one that gave me these people, right? You almost feel Timothy going, God, why have you put me in such a hard place? And you can imagine this little teeny church, maybe, maybe 15 to 30 people, not too many people, wondering in the middle of this, this town, that is cultured, being influenced by all sorts of immorality, this little church going, what, what are we to do here? Why does this church even matter? We're such a teeny little thing, meeting in one little home. What impact are we supposed to have in this world that God has placed us in? And that's actually where I want to start in our review. I want to start with a question. And the question is, life in the church, question mark, 
Because I want you to notice something in the text that I read to you this morning in verses 14 and 15 that Paul said to Timothy that I think is really important to our study in the 21st century of 1 Timothy. He said this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. How one ought to behave in the household of God. In other words, Paul wrote 1 Timothy to instruct Timothy and his dear little church on how they're to act in the household of God. So, so here's this discouraged pastor, this teeny little church, this young guy, fearful guy, wondering, what it, what's this all about? And Paul says, I'm writing to you to tell you how one ought to behave in the household of God. Now, by behave, he does not mean what I was taught as a youngster about behaving in church, right? Some of you young people and our children are with us this morning. Perhaps your mom and dad have said to you, like my mom and dad, don't run in the sanctuary, right? Now, my mom would tell you, I ran everywhere as a kid. I still run everywhere as as an old man, right? I run everywhere, right? And if my Achilles weren't blown out, I'd run a lot more places, right? Don't run in the sanctuary, Or, listen, the pews are not for you to stand on. This is the house of God. Don't stand on the pews. Or, as I learned as a young child and got in trouble in church services, while the communion cups fit perfectly in your eye sockets, they're they're not made to go there, right? They just don't, right? We literally got called out. Because one of my buddies put both of them in his eye sockets during the pastor's prayer. And we were rolling laughing. And he stopped the church service to say, we will not continue until those boys stop. And those eyeglasses popped right out of his eyeballs. Like, oh, man. So, listen, kids, they, they fit perfectly. Don't do it. Don't, don't do it. These are all appropriate rules, right? I mean, don't run in church. Don't stand in the pews. Don't put the communion cups in your eye sockets. All appropriate rules, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Instead, Paul is talking about the church's priorities, the church's mission, the church's teaching and doctrine, the quality and character and calling of the church's leaders. How should Timothy and all pastors who follow him behave regarding those things? How should the members of the first church of Ephesus and all church members who follow them behave regarding those issues? The church's priorities, the church's mission, the church's teaching, the calling and qualifications of the church's leaders. See, Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy is about life in the church. How we ought to behave in the household of God. And the reason why Paul is bringing that up is because in Paul's mind, as we're going to see, the local church is remarkably important. See, if if we don't think the local church is important, it doesn't matter how we behave in the local church. It doesn't matter about our priorities. It doesn't matter about our teaching. It doesn't matter about our mission. It doesn't matter about the qualification or the calling of our leaders. Those things don't matter because they would be unimportant if the church is unimportant. But God said in 1 Timothy 1 through 3, these things are important because the local church is important. So you might, you might feel like some 
did in Paul's day, in Timothy's day. What role does this tiny little place play in this world? I mean, think about it. What role, even though we might have over 450 members right now, that family members in this church, it's teeny in comparison to the rest of the world. What role does that have in this world? You might even think, well, what role should this gathering and what priority should this gathering have in my life? See, I think that's why Paul wrote the words that we read in verse 15 that we covered in our last sermon in this series when we saw what the local church is. Paul says it's it's the household of God, meaning this is the family of God gathered. When these members join our church, they're saying, I'm joining my church family. I want to be linking arms with people. I want people who will rejoice with me in good times and weep with me in hard times. I want people that when the world crashes in with me about understanding the gospel, that they're holding me up saying, no, we're right here alongside you. I need people in my life that we're linking arms together with that will encourage me when I'm discouraged. And if necessary, I need people to hold me accountable when I'm not doing the right thing. It's a family of God. But it's also, he said, the church of the living God. This gathering is not like gathering at the temple of Diana or a Buddhist temple or at the Hindu temple. My On my screensaver of my computer runs across the screen of pictures of places that we visited throughout our travels and ministry and life. And one of them that popped up this last Friday that I just happened to take notice of as I was writing my sermon was a picture of the tomb of George Washington. It's an amazing thought that here's this most... The founding father of our nation and his body is still in that tomb. We gather here together to worship the living God, the one who is not in the tomb, right? The one who has been raised from the dead. This is the church of the living God. But Paul said also it's the church. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It's, It's not a pillar and buttress of concrete or stone, but of the truth. It's a place where the truth is to be found. That when you walk in the doors of a local church, you should be hearing the truth expounded from God's word. Exegeting the text to say, this is what God has said. Not, hey, this is what I kind of think it means. This is what God has said. Therefore, if God has said it, we have to adjust our lives to it. See, this is where the truth is found. It's it's founded upon the truth. It's foundational to the truth. And Paul wrote about this truth in verse 16 of the text that we read when he declared the gospel to us. It's a truth about Jesus who came in the flesh, who was raised by the spirit, who is proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world and who ascended to heaven. The local church, this, this local church is holding high the truth of Jesus. See, in Paul's, in Paul's mind, Knowing how we behave in the church is important because the church is important. Now see, it, it's one thing to say, well, it's important to Paul. I get it. And, and it should be important to Timothy and maybe to us a little bit. But are you aware the reason it was important to Paul is because the local church is important to God? See, Paul knew something about the church that made Paul believe it was important 
See, our culture might say to you, the church needs to be minimized. And believe me, it, it, we say this is brand new, that they're talking about moving church and Christendom out on the outs. No, no, no. This is the same fight that's been going on since the first century. Doing everything that the ungodly world can to move the gospel to the circumference and move the people of God and the gathering of God to the circumference. It's always been a battle. It's always been going on. The Ephesian world might have tried to minimize the church. But, but friends, can I just say something to you very clearly? The church of the living God is not unimportant to God. As a matter of fact, the church is central to all of God's plans in his mission. It's central to all of God's plans in his mission. When you look at the biblical landscape, you'll find something very fascinating. God has always gathered a people under his name in particular locations. You're going to notice that throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, God called Israel, a small little teeny nation, to represent him as a people of his very own possession. A small nation surrounded by enemies on every side. Doesn't that sound like the church in Ephesus surrounded by the temple of Diana? Doesn't that sound like you and your cubicle at work surrounded by non-Christian people in a culture bombarding you with untruth? And according to Deuteronomy 7, God did not call them because they were wise or rich or strong, but because he loved them. And he set his heart upon them. And in the Old Testament, we read of their struggles to worship and represent the God of the universe all throughout their history. All the way to when we get to the New Testament, you see that many of them reject the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament to the point that the book of Acts says, and they put them, they put Jesus to death. The very one who came to be the perfect man, the perfect Jew, and the perfect Israel. He would fulfill and do all that Israel was promised to do. And Jesus gave life to the New Testament church. And like Israel, who represented God in the world in one place, what do you see God doing in the New Testament? He's calling people from every tribe, every nation, every community, and everywhere the gospel went, a new church was born in a local town. Just like Ephesus, just like Roseburg. See, it's always been God's plan in every part of human history to call people out of the world and add them to a local church where they can be equipped, they can be encouraged, they can be visibly seen to be children of God, they can be taught the word of God, they can utilize their gifts and ministries and parts of service as part of the central plan of God to take the gospel to every end of the earth. When Peter was writing to local churches and believers dispersed to various cities around the Roman Empire, here's what he said to them. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice very clearly, a royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And where are those people? They're dispersed 
in a variety of local churches all around. And Paul says, that's you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. See, this is God's way. It's God's way. A group of people gathered under his name in one location to represent this Savior. To do what? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, in God's mind and in God's economy, the church is kind of a big deal. It's not his secondary plan because Israel failed to work out. It's not his second round draft pick that's playing behind the number one draft pick and they're getting paid a whole lot money, the more money, even though the second round draft could really do the job. That's not how this works out. The church of Jesus Christ is central to God's mission on this earth. <clears throat> this is why Jesus was saying, Matthew, Matthew 15 or 16, I will build my church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. This is why for the life of the Christian, the local church is not an option or a spiritual luxury. It's not a condiment that you pull out of your spiritual disciplines and decide, I'm going to lay it on this slice of spiritual discipline and just put them together. And now I've kind of got it together. That's not how this is seen. No, the, the church, the local church is to be as important to us as it is to God. C.H. Spurgeon, one of my historical heroes, put it like this. I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to any church. Now, why not? Because I can be a Christian without it. Spurgeon replies, are you quite clear about that? You can be a good Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? There is a brick. What is it made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good a brick while it's kicking around about on the ground as it would be in the house. It is a good for nothing brick. So, you rolling stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live and you are much to blame for the injury that you do. Friends, when you're reading 1 Timothy chapter 1 through 3, you are reading about the church's importance and centrality to God's mission on this earth. We cannot miss that. And so if the church is central to God's mission, it should be central to us, then what should the church be doing? It's interesting, is in 1 Timothy 1 through 3, Paul gives us three priorities of the church. That's our second point today. You'll see these things very clearly in the text. The first priority that we're going to find is dependence on God. You'll see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 and verse 8. Notice what Paul wrote in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, first of all. Now, this is after Paul has already given introductory thoughts. He's already given uh, Timothy some thoughts on what he needs to be doing. And then he starts off chapter 2 with, Hey, by the way, first of all, it's almost like Paul says, hey, let's go back just for a second. The first priority central to all of this, what is the most important thing? And notice what it is. It's prayer. It's prayer. You, you think, you think in, in our world to get your church moving, it, it would be, it would be marketing. 
It'd be have good children's ministries. Have humorous, comedic preaching. Have captivating leaders. But what does he say? First of all, I urge that prayer, supplications, and thanksgiving be made. You know why he says that? Because prayer reveals an individual's and a church's dependence upon God. If you want to know how dependent you think you are on God, just evaluate your prayer life. How many things in your day do you spend just spent thir- serving prayers up to God? God, I need you here. God, would you help me here? God, would you intervene here? God, would you show up here? Or do you just go through your day without any thought of God's presence or activity in your life? That reveals your self-sufficiency. As we'll see, God has called the church and her leaders and her people to declare and demonstrate the truth of Jesus. But listen, without the power of God at work, our declaring and our demonstrating will fall on deaf ears. Without God doing what God does, opening the hearts of people to the truth of Christ, revealing the sin of people in their own lives, revealing the wonder of Christ, encouraging and building up the church, our impossible task. You realize every Sunday, my job, our preacher's job, our worship leader's job is impossible. You understand that, right? Because we're called to raise your eyes to see the Savior, and the only way that can happen is if the Savior shows up in power to reveal himself to you. You're aware, right? I mean, well, your sermon wasn't really good, Dave. Well, maybe the power of God didn't go to work in your life. Maybe you're hard-hearted, knucklehead, right? (laughs) Right? It's impossible to do anything eternal without the power of God. See, so, I mean, notice the things Paul told Timothy to pray for. Pray for kings and all those in authority. You need the power of God to work in your kings and all those in authority? Pray for all people. Pray the gospel would be advanced in such a way that you could live quiet and dignified lives with nobody bothering you about your faith in Jesus. You just get to do it freely. These are kingdom-minded prayers revealing our need for God to show up. See, before any priority is to be discussed, the local church must be dependent upon God, and prayer reveals our dependency. I just, I just want to... Do, do you see your need? Do you see our, our need, our weakness? Listen, we... Do you see that unless God does what God does, what we do, the preaching and declaring is just going to fall on deafness. God has to go to work. We need God. See, it, it, we, that's why we're to depend solely upon his power, not our, not our structures, not our trellises, not our administration, not our riches, not our wisdom, not our strength, but on God and God alone. The psalmist would say, some will trust in chariots, some will trust in horses, but we, oh we, we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Do you see your need for dependency? See, our first priority must be we are dependent upon God and it's evidenced by prayer. The second priority is in to declare sound doctrine. This is what we are to proclaim and we are to teach and we are to preach. 
And we know from chapter 1, as we looked at it earlier, that Paul wanted Timothy and his church to refute false teachers. But often, I think, we think of this in the negative form. You know, like, we're confronting false teachers, we're debating them, we're kind of holding them at the city gates and kind of, you know, meeting them with force. And there's a part of that that's true. But there's another side of this that I think Paul is after with Timothy. And it's kind of before that confrontational thing is done, or even hand-in-hand hand as the leader does it, it is declaring, proclaiming, and teaching sound doctrine to God's people over and over and over and over and over and over again. We see this in chapter 1 about teaching. When talking about using the law of God properly, Paul said that it should be, notice, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. When talking about what is truly trustworthy, Paul said this is a trustworthy, I mean, if you can trust anything, this is what you can trust. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then notice verse 18, Paul said, and Timothy, this is what I'm entrusting to you. What is he entrusting to him? This gospel preaching, this sound doctrine. And what's crazy is when you read the pages of 1 Timothy, you're reading Paul's hands and say, and Timothy to you and to CLF to you. I'm entrusting this to you. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. See, one way of refuting false teaching is to declare true teaching. And true teaching must be in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. See, sound doctrine, true teaching, must find its home in Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine, true teaching, must lead us to Christ. True teaching, you know when you've sat under it, because suddenly, when you are at the end of true teaching, a couple things are happening. Your heart is singing to worship your Savior, and your heart is stinging because you know where you've offended Him. And then your heart is singing because you confess your sin to him and he forgives you of stinging him. See, you are singing and you're stinging in your heart. That's what true preaching does. You know what true preaching does in the worship service? It should make you worship. It leads you to the worship of Christ. Notice how Paul wrote about this in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 when he says the aim... The goal of our teaching is love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, when, when sound doctrine is taught in dependence on the power of God, it will bear fruit of helping people love God and love others. It will lead people to live pure, sincere, Christ-like lives, and it will free them to serve God and others without manipulation and without guilt. You'll notice something about true teaching at the end of true teaching, they don't have to give you, you know, that really hard story to get you to finally be motivated. Instead, what true teaching does is, let me display the glories of the risen Christ. And this Christ is seated in heaven, and he's calling you, one of his people, to follow him. Do you hear your Savior's call? And the heart says, oh, I want to worship that Savior and obey him more. The reason true teaching does this is because it is filled with Christ. 
It's filled with Christ's perfect life for your imperfections. It's filled with Christ's perfect life for your, for, it's filled with Christ's power for your powerlessness. It's filled with Christ's kingship toward you to say to you, He is your king and He deserves your allegiance. It's filled with Christ's hope for your hopelessness. It's filled with Christ's glory because you are glory seeking all the time. It's filled with the worship of Christ. See what it does? True teaching elevates Christ above us. True teaching, sound teaching, promotes what Christ has done for us more than what we will ever do for Christ. And this must be the priority of the local church. When a local church does this, according to Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 14, you're going to notice something. Gifted teachers teach their people. It equips their people, notice, for works of ministry where when they leave the church building, they go out and are actually serving Christ because they're equipped with Christ. And then they become stable, no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know why? Because Jesus matters more to them than that silly little doctrine they're going to read on People magazine. Declaring sound doctrine refutes false teaching, and it must be a priority for the local church. Independence on the power of God. Last priority is that we are to demonstrate God's order in the church. We saw this from chapter 2, verse 8, through chapter 3, verse 13, when we talked about gender roles in the church and leadership roles in the church. As we noted in our four sermons on those texts, with the Ephesian culture crashing in on this church and the gender confusion in that city, it's no wonder why Paul gave them this instruction. But one thing I want you to notice about Paul's instruction about gender roles is Paul only gives instructions on in the church. To be very clear, Paul is not giving instructions in 1 Timothy on in the civil government or in the business world. I got asked this question through our gender. So are you saying that a woman could not be a CEO? I said, no, what I said was in the church. In the church, because I, I can only speak what God has spoken. In the church. So these are in the church instructions. And we've got to be careful with that. So remember, this is about how we should behave in the household of God, the church of the living God. And when he gave these instructions, it was clear that in the church... Only qualified men were to lead and teach with authority as elders in the church. This doesn't mean women can't teach or women shouldn't teach, right? You can listen to our sermons on that topic at a later time because I don't have time to cover it all, but you can see why we, we believe women can teach and should teach in certain places, but in the church, God has called qualified men to lead and teach with authorities at, teach with authorities elders. But again, you have to ask why. Why, when we see all around our world gender confusion, why in the church we've got to have gender order? Why? And again, my response to that, I think Paul's response is, if God's church is important to God, and if God's church is central to God's mission on this earth, then demonstrating God's order in the church must be important to the church. See, the church is to hold up the mirror of God's word to the world rather than imitating the world in the church. 
See, what we see in our culture, and we can deduct from the Ephesian culture, is worldly culture, gender confusion, role reversal, starts in the world, and it comes into the church. And when the church agrees or acquiesces or compromises on things like this, it becomes part of the church's culture and life, and then the church loses her influence. And gospel mission is compromised. But friends, that's not God's desire for the church. A priority in the church must be to demonstrate what God's order for gender and leadership roles look like in the church. And what that looks like is healthy, Christ-like love and appreciation for both God-given genders. Where we celebrate God-given genders and that both genders operate in their God-given roles in the church with joy and with honor. Where both genders understand they are equal in value, yet different in role. And in doing so, here's what we're saying. We're declaring to the world, Jesus is our king here, and his way of doing life leads to the best amount of human flourishing possible. So when you read... 1 Timothy 1 through 3, you see three clear priorities. Dependence on God, declaring sound doctrine, and demonstrating God's order. Now I want you to notice something about these three things. Notice it says nothing about church growth. Notice it says nothing about children's programs, or youth programs, or mission trips, or or dynamic worship, or... uh, Hymns versus choruses. Thank God for that, right? I mean, notice it doesn't say your mode of communion, whether you come down the aisle, people hand it out to you. Notice it doesn't say anything about financial stability. Notice it doesn't say pews or chairs. Notice it doesn't say the drums are too light or the drums are too loud. Notice it says something about sound amplification. Praise God. You cannot imagine how I thank God for this. Instead, what Paul is showing us is something fascinating. To be successful in local church ministry means we are to be faithful to God's priorities over the long haul. And God's priorities are not what is found in the latest version of Charisma magazine. Or what Christianity Today might say. God's priorities are found in God's word. See, while faithfulness will come, fruitfulness will come with faithfulness, I would argue that faithfulness matters more to God than fruitfulness. God is the one who brings the fruit and the increase as local churches are faithful to him and his priorities. Church, don't forget this. Don't forget this. See, there's a lot of you that are new here. A lot of you have been coming, checking us out, kind of seeing what we're about. We're glad you're here. Super glad you're here. But listen, these priorities actually show you what you should be looking for in a local church. Is the church and its leaders, are they humble and dependent on God? Is their posture, don't look at me, look at Christ. Is there posture? We need God's power to be at work or none of this works. 
Do they declare sound doctrine that points you to Jesus? And when you leave the service, something different's going off in you? Like, I want to worship this Jesus more. Or are you looking down and inward feeling condemned because you didn't do such a good job this week? Does the church demonstrate God's order in the church by seeing when you walk in the door, wow, these are strong women and wow, they're strong men. And look at the way these people love each other. There's unusual appreciation for strength in both genders. See, laugh, we must never forget. Faithfulness to God is what matters to God. Faithfulness and our dependence on God. See, a new building, new programs, new people, more money to advance the gospel are not signs that we've arrived, nor are they standard bearers for success. If we cannot be faithful to God in this little building that seems to be moving and expanding all the time, if we ever move across the parking lot, we'll never be faithful to God there. We are never more in need of the power of God than we are right now, and right now, and right now, and right now, and right now. Success is faithfulness to God over the long haul. Now, let me just say this. For us, in our history, CLF, you you get this. I'm so grateful that you understand this. We are not fast movers. (laughs) We are deliberate plotters. We take our time. And you've been okay with that. You expect this, and we rejoice in it. And the reason why we must understand that faithfulness to God matters over the long haul is because, listen, that's normally how God does his work. I just celebrated my 52nd birthday here a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and you can probably tell by all the gray hair in my head. My kids remind me of how my hair is getting gray, and I just tell them, it's okay, just call your dad the silver fox, and we're all good. I mean, we're, yeah, no big deal, right? But what 52 years, and now, shockingly, uh, what, what 33 years of gospel ministry has taught me is that God doesn't do anything in a hurry. See, those of us who love Jesus and long for him to send a God-empowered, spirit-filled revival, we want him to make sweeping changes in our world now. Now, I mean, right now. Would you just bring a spirit of revival over the whole nation? Everybody repent and fall on their faces. Suddenly we got, you know, Jesus is the president and we're excited. Revival, right? I mean, listen, we should pray for that. We should long for that. But we also have to understand something very clear from the Bible. You know what God has given to the world? A gospel-infused local church. See, what God has given to Roseburg and Douglas County is Covenant Life Fellowship and other churches who, like ours, who are faithful to God's priorities. See, God doesn't normally work in big extravagant events. It happens. They're rare. Very rare. It's done when local churches are faithful to God, to depend on God, to declare sound doctrine over and over and over again, and to demonstrate God's order in the church, in gender and in leadership, and we just do it over and over again while the whole world's bombarding us over and over again, and we just keep faithfully plodding through the thing. Because God uses faithful plotting. He uses it. The kingdom of God 
is, is at work in a myriad of mundane moments. It's mamas changing diapers and praying over their babies. It's Christians getting up to go to work every day, being faithful employees and employers and demonstrating and declaring the gospel when they get the opportunities. It's Christian friends talking to their non-Christian friends about Jesus. It's Christian neighbors being loving and kind and hospitable even when your neighbors are not very neighborly. Faithful plotting in the midst of the mundane. And again, CLF, we are grateful that you get this. You, you take these lessons to heart. You, you are faithful to represent Jesus. You want to do this better. You e- you're eager to live gospel-centered and, or- and oriented lives and be faithful to God. But listen, as we enter a new season of the year, summer's coming. And you know how quickly our priorities get out of whack in the summer. Because the sun showed up, that big orange thing in the sky shows up. But not only that, a new season in the church's life is here. These priorities must be kept central. We cannot deviate. And by God's grace, we will not deviate. We must make them as important in our lives as God intends them to be in our lives. See, so let's keep celebrating sound doctrine. Let's keep rejoicing in strong men and strong women at our church and do this better and better and better. But listen, let's also continue to grow in our dependence upon God in prayer. Being a people who realize we need the power of God to not only keep us humble, but to let the gospel go out in power. We need that desperately. And let's be people who are, who are desperate for God's power, right? I mean, let's, let's be that people, right? Let's, let's lay ourselves before God and say, God, please, we need you to go to work in us. Let's pray together. Father, we are freshly reminded of how precious the church is to you. And we're freshly reminded that our Savior gave up his life for his church. And I pray that you would elevate the importance of your church in our hearts where necessary. You are the shepherd of your people and you know exactly where adjustments need to be made. And I thank you for our church. It is truly a gift. But I pray, Father, that as you said to the Thessalonians, that we would abound more and more in the work of love for you and for others. And I pray that we would keep central your priorities for the local church, that, Lord, we would depend on you, oh God, that our hearts would never stop being humble before you and seeing our need that we would declare, proclaim, and teach sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That we would continue to rejoice in strong men and strong women and, and, and we, would, we would do this better and better and better. That we would honor God-given genders and find great joy 
in encouraging and strengthening one another. And then, God, we we just ask you that you would open up the eyes of non-Christian friends that need Jesus. That you would help us to have our God-intended influence in our community for your glory and for the advancement of the gospel. And we ask you to do these things because you're God and you can. And we entrust ourselves to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.